If you have your Bibles and would like to follow along as we read from the text for the sermon this Lord's Day, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and we will be considering verses 6 through 15 this Lord's Day. Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 15. There we read these words. Now at that feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Why did the Jewish Sanhedrin want Christ crucified? Well, the Sanhedrin wanted Christ crucified, no doubt, because they feared him. He had multitudes that followed him. And no doubt, they wanted to crucify Christ because they also despised him due to his testimony that he was the Son of God. He claimed to be the Son of God, equal to the Father in power and in glory. But the passage we shall consider this Lord's Day identifies another reason why the Jewish Sanhedrin wanted Christ crucified. They envied him, our text says. They were jealous of him. They wanted what he had, and if they could not have what he had, they plotted to destroy him in order that they might seize that which they coveted after, and that after which they lusted, namely, their positions of authority and power and influence with the people. Here was the sin of envy that led the Jewish Sanhedrin to plot and to demand the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ will likewise lead us to plot 
to lie, to steal, and to destroy others, if necessary, in order to obtain that which we believe we must have, in order to make our lives happy, or in order to be successful. If God grants us light to see how these Jewish leaders sin through envy, may he also grant us light and understanding today that we may see our sins of envy and discontentment that lead us away from finding our peace and joy and contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is sufficient to satisfy our every need Dear ones, the source of so many of the sins into which we fall is believing that something other than Christ can fully satisfy the longings and the desires of our soul. Dear ones, God intends that the blessings of this life refresh us, but never that they become our life and our reason for living. Dear ones, it is not sinful to desire the comforts of this life and to pray for the comforts of this life so long as these things are met. First of all, that we can be content without them if God should withhold them from us. In other words, the things that you desire, if God does not grant them to you as you want and as you wish, can you be content in Jesus Christ without them? Can you see God's purpose and plan? And can you rest in Christ and rejoice in Christ without them? Or must you have them in order to be happy? In order to have peace and joy? Secondly, we must realize that it's not sinful to to desire the comforts of this life if, as long as we do not desire them, more than we desire Christ. Thirdly, as long as we desire them to God's glory, do we want to use them for lawful ends, lawful uh, goals in mind? Do we want to use them ultimately to prosper and to benefit the kingdom of God? Everything we have, dear ones, in this life should have some connection in one way or another to promoting the kingdom of Christ. There should not be an altogether disconnect with the things of this life and promoting the kingdom of Christ. Even our possessions, our callings, our degrees, our cars, our homes, we should have them all ultimately for the end that we want to better serve Christ. And then finally, dear ones, we do not believe that it's sinful to desire the comforts of life as long as we do not desire them to an extreme, to an excess. As long as we keep these things in mind, it is lawful to desire the comforts of this life. Those things must be ever, always uh, kept in mind as we do, however, desire the things of this life. You see, dear ones, the temporal blessings of this life should always turn us in one way or another to the bread of life and to the water of life. The Lord Jesus Christ, 
who alone fully satisfies our hunger and fully satisfies our thirst forever and ever, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Beloved, our full satisfaction and joy and contentment is only to be found in our union and in our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let us consider three different manifestations of the sin of envy and the last phase of Christ's civil trial before Pilate. There were these three different manifestations of envy that we want to look at today. First of all, the envy of the chief priests in Mark 15, verses 6 through 11. Second, the envy of Pilate in Mark 15, verses 12 and 15. And third, the envy of the multitude in Mark 15, verses 13 and 14. And so the first manifestation of envy that we shall consider is the envy of the chief priest. Look with me again at Mark 15, verses 6 through 11, where we read, Now at that feast he, that is Pilate, released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he ever done unto them. And Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. In our text this Lord's Day, we have now come to the third phase of Christ's civil trial. You recall that first of all, there was the unjust trial that was carried out by the religious leaders. So there was these series, three phases of the religious trials carried out against Christ. And then it moved into three phases of civil trials against Christ. First, before Pilate, the Roman procurator. Then, Pilate sent the Lord Jesus Christ to Herod, who examined him. After the examination by Herod, Christ was sent back to Pilate, finally. Our text today begins with a particular custom in verse 6 of chapter 15, and a particular prisoner in verse 7 of chapter 15. As to the custom which we find in Mark 15:6, there is no record that has been left to us how it came to be that a prisoner was released by Pilate at the feast of the Passover from year to year. How long this custom had been practiced, we don't know. Who instituted this particular custom, we're not told. However, it is likely that this custom was used by the Roman procurator as a favor to the Jews, so as to build some bridges with the Jews and quell their animosity toward Rome to some degree. Because they were the occupiers of 
their nation, Rome was. They were trying in the midst of this occupation to, to build as peaceful relationships with the people as possible. And so one of the ways that they devised apparently to do so was to release to them a particular prisoner every year that the people would say they wanted released. <clears throat> well, this was clearly the politics of expediency that was in action here. For you see, it was more important to Pilate to forgo justice in releasing a murderer, if necessary, for the sake of a peaceful dominion over the Jews. Now, although a civil magistrate may lessen the penalty in a crime committed because he believes certain circumstances warrant not exacting the full extent of the law, he may not lessen the penalty simply to court the favor of others. Listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. Here are Here's a woe pronounced upon those who spend much time over their strong drink, over wine and their beer, and who live to party, basically. This same woe continues into the next verse, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. So, woe to them who justify the wicked for reward and, on the other hand, take away the righteousness of the righteous, who, in effect, condemn the righteous. Now, Christ was clearly not a civil magistrate, but I would have you note how he takes special circumstances into account and so should civil magistrates as well under certain, in certain cases. You remember that there was brought to Christ on one occasion a woman who had been caught in adultery in the very act. And the Pharisees said, the law of God says that those who commit adultery should be stoned to death. What do you say? So here was Christ put, put on the horns of this of uh, this dilemma, as it were. What would Christ say in that particular situation? Well, we know as we read in John chapter 8 that the Lord does not say she, in this particular case, should receive the full extent of the law and be stoned to death. Why? Well, let me give to you what I believe the reason was why the Lord considered this a special case. Because this woman had been set up by the Pharisees, and this is shown by the fact that the man involved in this adulterous act had not been brought along with her. She was the mere person who had been brought to be slain. Where was the other party? Didn't the law also require both the man and the woman to be slain? Why was she the only one who was brought? 
Thus, the witnesses who set her up and brought the accusations against her were themselves partakers of this very sin and could not testify against her. That is why Christ, in that particular situation, did not plead for her execution, but rather said to them, you who are without the sin, in effect, the same sin, you who are not parties to the same sin, cast the first stone. But I would have you see here, dear ones, that Pilate did not release a prisoner each Passover due to some just consideration of special circumstances. Rather, Pilate released a prisoner each year as a mere bribe to court the favor of the Jews. That is not justice. And I would, by way of application, have us consider, dear ones, that bribes may come in all sizes and shapes and colors and packages. Beware of giving them or receiving them. For whenever we give something to someone else so as to put that someone else into our debt so that we can pull it out later on when we need their assistance, we have bribed them. Bribes may come in the form of words when we give insincere compliments or flattery. Bribes may come in the form of money when we pay someone off to remain quiet or to perform something unlawful for us. Bribes may come in the form of compromised or insincere promises to citizens so as to get reelected. I dare say that much of the innovations, the modern innovations in worship services today are mere bribes on the part of ministers to appeal to the desires of people so as to fill their churches. Well, we move in our text now from a particular custom to a particular prisoner. Look with me at Mark 15, 7, where we find this prisoner. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him who had committed murder in the insurrection. Here we are introduced to Barabbas for the first time. Barabbas was a criminal who was guilty of instigating an insurrection or uh, an armed rebellion against Rome. Apparently, in the course of this insurrection, he had also become guilty of murder and of robbery as well. John 18.40 not only mentions, we not only find that he was guilty of murders, we have read here in Mark 15, but John 18.40 also mentions that he was guilty of robbery. It's interesting to to reflect upon the fact that that there were three crosses. Christ was in in the middle. The two who were guilty of uh, theft were on either side. Here it says that there were others that were condemned in this insurrection with Barabbas. 
It's interesting to consider that that middle cross should have been Barabbas, not Christ, according to all due human justice. It may be that Barabbas was one of the leaders of the zealot movement among the Jews, which was a Jewish liberation movement to militarily free Israel from Roman dominion. Barabbas is said to be a notable prisoner, that is, a notorious prisoner. He was well known, according to Matthew 27:16. Here was not someone who, who was just a mere common criminal who was not known, but one who was uh, like a bandit, like a Jesse James, if you will. But perhaps in the eyes of many of the Jews had a more noble goal that he was seeking the liberation of Israel from Roman dominion. Well, when Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate, as we've already alluded to, that was the second stage of the civil trial under Herod. Herod now sends Jesus back to Pilate, the final, the third phase of the civil trial. Pilate announced that neither himself nor Herod had found Christ guilty of any crime. In Luke chapter 23, verses 14 and 15, Pilate makes this very clear, that Jesus is not guilty of having committed any crime. The chief priests saw that unless they incited the multitude to the point of almost a riot, that Jesus would likely soon be released by Pilate because neither Pilate nor Herod could find in Jesus any wrong. They couldn't find any reason to keep him, let alone have him crucified. They couldn't find any reason to even keep him imprisoned. This the chief priests realized as they heard what Pilate said, that neither Herod nor Pilate found anything wrong in Christ. Thus, the chief priests had a backup plan already in place when they heard that Pilate wanted to release Christ. First, the chief priests incite the mob to shout loudly and wildly that Pilate released to them a prisoner, as was his custom from year to year, according to Mark 15.8. Secondly, Pilate takes the occasion to look for a way to release Christ and places Christ forward as the prisoner whom he would set free. After they raised this particular custom to to Pilate, Pilate, in effect, says, well, okay, let's release a prisoner. I submit to you, let's release Jesus Christ. But Pilate not only places Christ forward as the prisoner to release, but even pits the innocent Christ against a cruel and murderous Barabbas, believing that surely no one would prefer the murderer Barabbas to be released over the innocent Jesus Christ, according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 17. But Pilate was ever so wrong. For we see thirdly that these wicked chief priests further inflamed the multitude that was gathered 
there before Pilate to yell and shout and scream at the top of their lungs that Barabbas be released and Christ be crucified, according to Mark 15, verse 11. What motivated the chief priest to incite the mob to release Barabbas and to crucify Christ? Mark 15.10 says, For he, that is Pilate, knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. They wanted Christ crucified because they envied him. They wanted Christ dead because of the gifts and the graces he possessed and because of the multitudes that followed him. Jesus was a threat, you see, to their position and authority, which up to that point the chief priests had held over the people of Israel. During his ministry, Christ had blown the whistle many times on the hypocrisy and on the self-righteousness and the lust for power that filled the lives of these religious leaders. These chief priests knew that if Christ was allowed to continue his ministry, he could bring about their own fall in the eyes of the people. Thus, he must be put to death in the most shameful and disgraceful way possible. By crucifixion. The envy of the chief priests who would retain their power and influence over the people moved them to murder the sinless Son of God according to the inspired text of Holy Scripture. Here again, dear ones, we see the infallible testimony of God that Christ did not justly go to the cross to suffer for his own sin but when in order to suffer for the sins of others. Dear ones, the sinless Son of God willingly suffered the shame and the torture of crucifixion. He voluntarily suffered the infinite wrath and condemnation of His Father that we who trust in Him might be delivered from condemnation in hell and from the sin of envy and all sin now and for all eternity. Sins of envy, covetousness, and lust are the source of all manner of sin in our lives, in all of our lives, without exception. Eve wickedly desired the forbidden fruit which she believed would make her wise like God, and she brought sin and misery into the world. Cain envied the divine approval which his brother received, and he murdered his brother Abel. Absalom envied the royal power of his father as king in Israel, and he sought to destroy David in order to get it. David lusted for Bathsheba, and it led to his committing adultery and murdering Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Ahab, King Ahab, coveted the vineyard of Naboth, and it led to Naboth's unjust trial and wicked murder. And in our text today, it was this very sin of envy that led the chief priest to promote the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could multiply many biblical examples of how envy, covetousness, and lust did lead to gross and heinous outward sins. Even in the lives of God's people, 
even in the lives of those who were Christians. No doubt we could do the same in our own lives as well. That is, recount many, many times that lust or envy or covetousness or wicked desires have led to outward sins in our lives. Does not envy and lust drive men and women is it not that those particular sins within envy and lust that drive men and women to visit pornographic websites? To watch programs that fulfill that lust? Or movies that fulfill that lust? To listen to music that fulfills that lust? To pick up magazines that stir up those passions within us? Is it not lust and covetousness and envy that drive us to those kinds of sins? No longer does intimacy in marriage satisfy as God has ordained, but it must be satisfied by vicarious sexual acts with others. Does not envy and covetousness for riches lead men to compromise the truth in order to have the riches which they desire? Does not Envy and covetousness for what men do not have by way of material possessions lead them to hate and to despise what they do have in this life and to make them utterly miserable? I don't know of people, dear ones, that are more miserable in, at periods of time in your life or mine when we've been more miserable than we, when we are envious and covetous and lustful. There is discontentment, not contentment. Does not envy and lust for power and the approval of others cause rivalry and hatred and slander and selling the truth to get it? Dear ones, into what sins has our envy, covetousness, and lust led us? Envy is a sin that makes us absolutely miserable, as I said earlier, in this life. For envy tells us that we, we deserve everything that we want. We deserve it. That's what envy tells us. That's what covetousness tells us. We deserve it. It's not fair that we don't have what we want. But dear ones, let me tell you, envy is a lie. What we deserve due to our sin is unceasing anguish and misery moment by moment. What we deserve for the sin of envy is the unremitting and infinite punishment of a holy God in hell forever. And in this life, every single moment as well. We deserve nothing, dear ones. We deserve nothing by way of food, clothing, and shelter. We don't deserve those things. For we have sinned away, dear ones, every benefit, every blessing that God would offer unto us. We have sinned it away. If God were to give us what we deserve, He would not give us one single comfort or blessing in this life but anguish and punishment moment by moment by moment for our sin that we have committed against him. And so, dear ones, if the temporal benefits of this earth 
and the eternal blessings of heaven, if they will not satisfy us, if what we have in Jesus Christ will not satisfy us, and what he has given to us to enjoy a measure of in this life, even if we don't have all that we desire, then nothing will. Nothing will satisfy us. If Jesus Christ, dear ones, does not bring us joy and peace in this life, nothing will. Philippians 1.21 says, the testimony of the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And as I have said on other occasions, if you were to remove Christ from that verse, for me to live is what? What is it for you to live? What are you living for? If you put anything in the place of Christ there, death will not be a gain to you. Death will be a loss to you. First of all, because you'll be leaving behind in death what you consider to be your life. And if Christ is not your life, you will not be going to heaven. You'll be spending eternity in hell. Even according to God's own holy and just judgment. I would submit to you, dear ones, that we are not satisfied with Christ as we ought to be, even as Christians, because we do not see the infinite wealth and riches that are in Jesus Christ. We have forgotten the wealth that we have in Jesus Christ, all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that are ours. For how could we be satisfied if we understood what we have in Christ? How can we be satisfied with dog food, as it were, when we have a table set with the richest and finest foods at which to banquet and to which to eat? And that comparison even falls so infinitely far short of the reality of what we have in Christ. And yet we choose to continue to eat the dog food rather than to come to the banqueting table and to feast at the meal that Christ prepares for us. But that is precisely what the sin of envy does. It blinds us to what is truly valuable and of infinite worth and casts our our eyes upon that which perishes and vanishes in this life. Dear ones, envy leads envy leads to misery, not happiness. Mark it down. Envy leads to misery, not happiness. It leads to sin, not holiness. It leads to complaint, not thankfulness. Let us, dear ones, seek the forgiveness of God the forgiveness of the Son of God who was condemned by the envy of others and who died to deliver his people from all their wicked desires. Let us grow, dear ones, in our hatred for our envy and our covetousness and our lust. And let us renew that sweet fellowship and communion in Jesus Christ and find in him afresh and anew the wealth, the riches that are ours in Jesus Christ. The second main point, and we'll be moving more quickly through these next two points, but the second main point 
is a second manifestation of envy, the envy of Pilate. In Mark chapter 15, verses 12 and 15, we read, And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And then verse 15, skipping down to verse 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Having noted the envy of the chief priests, which was explicitly stated in our text, let us consider the envy of Pilate, which is implicitly stated in our text. For Pilate desired above everything else, our text says, to content the people. In Mark 15, 15. That was what motivated Pilate, to content the people. That was what... He desired above all else, that was what he envied, was the contentment of the people. That they would remain at peace, that he would be able, therefore, to retain his authority, his power and dominion as Roman uh, procurator over uh, these provinces. Although Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent of any wrongdoing, his desire to retain his place of power as Roman procurator by appeasing the mob was greater than his desire to administer justice. Thus, envy to content the people, to appease the people, drove Pilate to agree to the release of Barabbas and their crucifixion of the sinless Son of God. Not only did Pilate know that Herod found Christ innocent of any wrong, not only did Pilate know that it was the envy of the Jews that moved them to desire Christ's crucifixion, not only did he know by way of his own examination of Christ that he was innocent of any wrongdoing, But even the Lord himself gave Pilate an extraordinary and supernatural testimony through a dream that God gave to Pilate's wife, according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 19. Pilate's wife sent a message to Pilate saying, don't have anything to do in condemning this just man. I had a dream last night. And I suffered in anguish much over this particular situation. God gave Pilate's wife a dream. Again, supernaturally, this was a further testimony of Christ's innocency. All of these other confirmations joined together to speak to Pilate of the abundance of testimony that Christ was innocent, and yet Pilate yielded to his envy for power over his desire for justice. After having received the message concerning his wife's dream, Pilate placed the names of Barabbas and Christ side by side, to seek out the desire of the people, according to Matthew 27.1. Pilate then sought to dissuade the mob from taking Barabbas over Christ. 
He did seek to do that. He did seek to dissuade them. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 22 through 23. It is obvious that Pilate was moved, however, by envy over justice, for the choice of Barabbas over Christ should never have even been presented to the people by Pilate. That should never have even been an option. Christ, having committed no wrong, should have simply been released according to all due justice. But envy, dear ones, is such a powerful motive in sinful man that it swallows up justice, truth, and righteousness when necessary. When there is defection from the truth within the church of Jesus Christ, I wonder how often that defection is due to envious desires rather than due to sincere, though erroneous, convictions. How often is it due to envy? How often do those who fall away from the truth act like Pilate in allowing envy to swallow what they know to be true? Envy to have peaceful relations in the home may lead a wife or husband or parent or child to compromise the truth. Envy to avoid division within the church may lead ministers or elders to tolerate unsound doctrine or corrupt worship. Envy to have preeminence in the church may incite one to go to another church at the expense of what they know to be true. Envy to spare one's own livelihood in the ministry or even one's life may move one to deny the truth. Let us be ever so conscious of our desires that may not be sinful in and of themselves. Peace isn't sinful. Leadership is not sinful. Vocations, such as the ministry, are not sinful. Liberty, not being in prison, desiring to be free and out of prison, is not sinful. Preserving and cherishing our life here upon the earth is not sinful. But when we would compromise any of those things for the truth, we envy and desire those things more than we desire the truth of God. And that is sinful. That is sinful. At that point, we've fallen into the very sin that Pilate fell into. Neither Pilate's efforts to release Christ nor his attempts to wash his hands of his own personal guilt in crucifying Christ, as we see in Matthew 27, verse 24, could remove him from being a partaker in the sin of Christ's crucifixion. The outward ceremonies of man do not remove personal guilt in turning from the truth. In the final analysis, Pilate chose his envious desire to be a leader over that of Jesus Christ and his truth. He knew Christ was innocent. Yet he chose, out of envy, he chose to be a leader, to be the Roman procurator, and to appease the people so that he would not lose his position. May the Lord open our eyes to see how our envy will lead us to turn even our eyes from that which is true. How our envy will cause us 
to backslide from what we know to be true. May God grant us the grace to learn from the sin of Pilate what is at cost, what is at stake here. Finally, the third manifestation of envy was the envy of the people. Look with me at Mark 15, verses 13 and 14. There we read, And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. Finally, let us consider how the envy of the multitude led them to desire Barabbas over Christ. What happened, probably a very natural question would arise in our minds, what happened to the masses of people who less than a week earlier had proclaimed Christ to be the messianic king of Israel? How did it come about that now the multitudes were crying out for Christ's crucifixion? Whereas less than a week ago they were proclaiming proclaiming him to be the king. Was this an entirely different group of people that desired the crucifixion of Christ? We're not told that it was either the same group of people or that it was a different group of people. If it was a different group of people, say this was a group of zealots like Barabbas himself that had congregated there before before Pilate. Let's just assume that for a moment. Then we have here a case of people preferring their popular hero, Barabbas, over Christ, the Son of God. This is certainly popular today as well. Whether it be that we prefer our movie stars, our music stars, or our sports stars, or our political stars, or our financial stars over Christ. Dear ones, when the people envied and chose Barabbas over Christ, they committed an act of idolatry, whether they realized it or not. And when we want our stars and heroes more than we want the Lord Jesus Christ, we commit idolatry in our lives. When we want to be like our stars more than we want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, we commit idolatry. For covetousness, according to the scripture, is idolatry. Well, if the group that cried out for Christ's crucifixion was the same group, not a different group as we just uh, hypothesized, but if it was in fact the same group that had proclaimed him to be their messianic king, then we have a case of people preferring, I would suggest to you, preferring an earthly kingdom with all of its comforts over the spiritual kingdom which involves suffering and which is the kingdom which Christ actually offered. For it was a common view among the Jews of that time, even among the disciples themselves, as we have seen in the past, to believe that the Messiah would come to sit upon the literal throne of David, that he would destroy Rome's dominion over Israel, and that peace and comfort and prosperity would come to the nation of Israel above all the nations in the world. This the people seemed to anticipate as they wildly cheered Christ as he came riding upon that donkey into Jerusalem. 
As he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem a few days before, and they claimed and proclaimed him to be the Messiah. But like Judas, their hopes had now been dashed as they saw Christ in all of his humiliation and chains before them. Not sitting upon the throne of David, but in chains. Having already been beaten to some degree, his face perhaps bruised, bloodied by the soldiers under the religious trial. They no longer saw Christ as a king. They now saw him as an imposter. Thus, a kingdom that involved suffering was not appealing to them at all. A kingdom that involved their Messiah suffering and dying for the sins of his people did not interest them in the least. What they envied and desired was a kingdom that involved their prosperity and their comfort. And this one, dear ones, has always been the case. It has always been the case. When suffering for the cause of Christ becomes a reality, the ranks of the faithful church thin out, while the ranks of the unfaithful church increase. That will always be the case. I ask you today, dear ones, do you envy the comforts of this life more then you envy the faithful, being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ even when it involves your suffering. Dear ones, Christ did not come to offer us a comfortable kingdom in this life. In many cases, he offers us a kingdom of righteousness, righteousness and truth that brings and ushers in suffering into our lives in various ways whether by way of physical afflictions, whether by way of financial trials, whether by way of ridicule and mockery from, from others because we stand for Jesus Christ, will not bend the knee to popular opinion and, and opinion polls, but we're going to stand for the truth, whatever it costs us and whatever it requires of us. However, dear ones, there is coming a day a certain day, a day which the Lord has, has declared will come on that final day in which the comfortable kingdom in this life will be thrown into, into the kingdom of everlasting torment while the suffering kingdom in this life, kingdom of righteousness and truth, kingdom of faith in Jesus Christ will be transformed into a kingdom of everlasting comfort and joy and peace. Let us not be like the people of Christ's time in envying the comforts of this life to such an extent that we forsake Christ due to the suffering we must endure for his sake. In conclusion, let us not fail, dear ones, to see that Christ suffered here in the place of Barabbas. Now, I'm not suggesting that Barabbas was one of God's elect. I'm not suggesting that Barabbas ever came to know Jesus Christ as his own Savior, that he placed faith in Jesus Christ. But I do believe there is a spiritual picture here, if I could use that language. Barabbas, dear ones, should have been on that cross between his two cohorts and accomplices in crime. 
Barabbas should have endured the shame and disgrace of that cross because he was guilty. He deserved to to bear the pain and the anguish of that cross just as each of us do for our sins, the sins we have committed against God. We deserved to be there. We, dear ones, I would suggest to you, are Barabbas. We are the chief of sinners. And we have no claim in ourselves to life and forgiveness and in heaven. We have forfeited our claim to every blessing of God due to Adam's sin, which is imputed to us due to the corruption of our own nature and due to our own personal sins, we have forfeited every claim, rightful claim to every blessing that God bestows. Beloved Christ could have exerted his divine power. He could at that moment proclaimed himself to be sinless and innocent He could have wiped out all of those who brought charges against him. He could have destroyed them right on the spot, being the almighty God. But he chose to suffer. He chose to take the place of Barabbas. To suffer and to die for sinners who justly deserve to be there. Are you miserable today? due to your discontentment? If so, I would suggest you have forgotten. You have forgotten that you are Barabbas and that Christ freely suffered in your place. You've forgotten what you deserve for your sin. And therefore, you can't see the riches of his glory. You can't enjoy them. You can't rejoice in all that you have in this life. You cannot see clearly because envy, remember, deceives. Envy blinds us to the truth. You have forgotten, dear ones, that that faith in Jesus Christ alone is how we obtain joy and peace and contentment. I would suggest if you are discontent today, if you're living in the misery of that discontentment, you've made the things of this world your God rather than the God of creation. Let us pray today, dear ones, that God would humble our proud and envious hearts that we might see our sins so clearly and turn to Christ. Turn to Him who alone can grant us joy and peace and contentment. Who alone can grant us repentance so that we hate our sin of envy. So we despise it. And so that we see clearly the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And rather than being miserable, we go through the day thanking the Lord for all that we have. Praising him for all that he has given to us freely of his grace.
Beloved, every one of us must let go of the things of this life if we're to grasp by faith the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't do this. We can't hold on to the things of this world and hold on to Christ. We must embrace Him by faith. Yes, the things of this life will continue to entice us and tempt us and we will fall into sins in various ways. But our faith must be firmly in Jesus Christ and not in the things of this world that perish and that will pass away. We cannot cling to both if we would know true contentment. If we'd know true peace and joy and avoid the sin of envy, we must cling to Christ alone. Let us stand together in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.